Hello and welcome to Running Through History with Cotentialing. This is a podcast that I'm going to use to talk about all things history, government and otherwise. Just things that I'm interested in, things my students are interested in, questions that they might have. I'm going to use this podcast to explore different topics in history. Um, Every year I start my class with just asking the students to write down two or three things that they are interested in. Something that they don't know, something that they might have a question about. And every year without fail, um, North Korea is on there. What in the heck is up with North Korea? And so that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to talk a little bit about about North Korea, this place that's in the news a lot lately. I think a lot of people are very interested in, um, you know, their nuclear program, um, their government. How did they get to be this way? So that's the that's what I'm going to take a look at at, at first. You know, North Korea, just to give a little bit of information about it, um, it's roughly the size of of Pennsylvania. Um, for about a decade now, it has been ranked as one of the most cru- corrupt countries in the world every year by Transparency International. Um, less than 3% of the roads in North Korea are actually paved. They have thousands and thousands of miles of roads, but only 3% of them are actually paved. Kim Jong-un, who is the leader of North Korea right now, has ordered all the male citizens in North Korea to basically kind of mimic their haircut after his. Their hair can only be a couple inches long. Um, and if you were to look at a satellite image of North Korea at night, just Google North Korea at night, what you would see is that it goes completely dark. And the reason for that is that North Korea, I would say probably about a quarter of their population are what would be considered the elites, the ruling class. And they're the only people who actually have access to basic amenities like indoor plumbing, cars, electricity. So there, there's a there's a stark contrast in North Korea between that group of people and everybody else who really can barely afford to feed themselves. Um, so we're going to talk about how on earth did North Korea get to be that way. But to start, though, I'm not just going to jump in with North Korea. I feel like we need to talk a little bit about Korea itself and get to the point of them of, of the country being split between North and South. So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to actually start way back in history in the Bronze Age. Don't worry. I'm going to get to World War II relatively quickly. But I feel like it's important to know um, a little bit about, about Korea's history um, before we jump in to North Korea. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about um, Korea itself and a little bit of background information about about the about the country. And you cannot talk about Korean history and, and the background of Korea without talking about China. A lot of historians have kind of described the relationship between China and Korea as being kind of a big brother, little brother type of relationship. Um, because Korea's culture is very much influenced by China. And up until the 20th century, um, China really played a kind of a bit of, of a protectionist role over Korea. So China's influence in Korea actually began in the Bronze Age. China is going to be the country that introduced iron to Korea. And with that um, first initial contact, there's going to there's so much more is going to come from it. Because I think people often think of trade as being just goods, but it's not going to be good, just goods. It's also going to be um, ideas, religions, philosophies, languages, um, you know, all type of cultural influences are going to come with trade um, alongside the goods that are coming in. So from China, Korea is not going to only get iron, but they're also going to get rice, which is going to become the staple of their diet. Um, and they're also going to get Buddhism in the 600s. Before Chinese influence, Korea had a spoken language, but there was no written language. Um, so at the same time that Buddhism came into Korea, so did Chinese characters. So what Korea is going to do is they're going to take the Chinese characters from their written language, China's written language, and they're going to simplify the characters to fit their own language. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the whole history of Korea because I want to get to modern day as quickly as possible. But it really is important to know about Korea's relationship with China. Um, and so Korea is going to gain a lot from its relationship with China um, and you know, that we still see in, in Korea, in particular in South Korea today. Um, but as I said earlier, they also are going to get protection from China 
or China is going to provide them protection at, at various points in of history. Um, they're going to protect China, I mean Korea, over and over again from invasions. Like in the 1500s, Japan actually tried to invade Korea, and the Chinese Ming Dynasty is going to repel the Japanese forces for them. So that's just one example of of of, of that. But y'all, as we get into the modern period, and by modern period I'm talking about like late 1800s into the 1900s, China's position in the world is going to decline. Um, and with their decline, um, which could be a whole other podcast during the age of, of imperialism, what happened is China can no longer protect Korea. Um, not only could China not protect Korea, but China's decline um, eventually actually called, uh, caused Korea's decline. And in 1895, Japan is going to defeat China in what was called the Sino-Japanese War. And that is effectively going to end China's influence in Korea and begin Japan's. So essentially, we have this, you know, Korea having such a tie to China for centuries. Now, from about 1910 to the end of World War II, Japan is basically going to rule over Korea. So after that Sino-Japanese War, Japan is going to really start to take over and really influence and control Korea. Um, and for Japan, again, this could be a whole other podcast. During that time for them from 1910, well, 1895 really, to the end of World War II, Japan had become increasingly militaristic and totalitarian. Um, and they're going to be on the side of the Axis powers with Germany and Italy during World War II. Um, and so that is going to get us to World War II. So we're just kind of flying through this, you know, to get to the Korean War, basically. So that's what, what we are leading up to here. So World War II, I'm just going to a little bit of time on this because it's super important for the split in North Korea. So just a little bit of background about World War II. Again, that's important to know for the division of Korea. Um, the Allied powers in World War II were America, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union. So those are the three main Allied powers, those three. So if you think about those three, it's a super unnatural alliance because you basically have two democratic countries with America and Great Britain and one communist country with the Soviet Union. So super, super, super unnatural alliance, to say the least. And the only reason why this alliance happened in the first place was because Hitler broke the alliance that he had with Stalin at the beginning of the war. So the only reason why... The Soviet Union ended up on the side of the Americans in Great Britain is because Hitler flipped on Stalin. So the American president, FDR, and the Great Britain Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, really could trust Stalin as far as they could throw him. Um, so as we all know, the Allies are going to be victorious at the end of the, of, of the war. And so what this unnatural alliance had to do was to figure out how to end this war together. They had to figure out what to do with all the territories that were held by the Axis powers um, in World War II. What, what had, they had to come together and try to figure out how are they going to rebuild and what are these countries gonna, going to look like. Because one of the things that Stalin talked about and that what he wanted is he wanted to spread communism. And obviously that's not what America and Great Britain wanted. So one of the, of, the, of the things that this alliance is going to do at the end of World War II is they're going to end up sharing occupation of certain continents and certain countries. For instance, um, Germany. You know, the east part of Germany was going to be controlled by the Soviet Union. They were supposed to re- rebuild them. And then um, America and Great Britain and then France is going to be there. They're in the western part of Germany. Um, and eventually what's supposed to happen is let's rebuild the, the, their zones. Each of these countries rebuild their zone and eventually let Germany have what is called self-determination. And they can figure for themselves, do they want to go the way of communism or do they want to go the way of, of democracy? Um, and that's also what was decided about Korea. Okay. Um, so after the Japanese defeated, were, were uh, de- defeated in August of 1945, the decision was made to divide up Korea at the 38th parallel, the Soviet Union occupying the North and America occupying the South. So like Germany, the plan was for both countries to rebuild their occupation zones and eventually allow the countries to have what is self-determination. But what happens 
is at the after World War II, so after it was all said and done, the Cold War is going to begin. And the relationship between the democracies of the world, in particular America, and the Soviet Union is going to deteriorate rapidly. Um, America and Korea was very willing to be a part of the UN, the United Nations, sponsored elections in 1948, but the Soviets would not cooperate. And that ends up what, ha- what happens across, all across you know, Asia and into Europe is um, none of these elections are really ever going to happen. Um, and that's why the Cold War is going to escalate throughout the 1950s, um, 60s, 70s, and 80s. All right, so let's focus on just Korea and this split. So again, they're split at the 38th parallel. Um, and there was kind of a pseudo-democratic government supported by America. It was going to be, it was set up in the South. And they proclaimed themselves the Republic of Korea. The North is going to set up a communist government. And they are going to proclaim themselves the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And they are going to um, put... Kim Il Sung in charge of North Korea, and we'll talk. We're, and we're going to talk about him a lot later on. Um, so, the South pseudo democratic government supported by America, the North communist government supported by the Soviet Union, um, supposed to have these elections in 1948, but um, basically North Korea and the Soviet Union are going to refuse to participate in in these elections. Um, the Soviet Union is actually going to withdraw from North Korea in 1949, and communist China is going to begin to support them. Um, and so what emerges from this disagreement, because the North wanted Korea to come back together as a communist country, but they wouldn't participate in the elections. The South wanted the Korean Peninsula to come back together under a democratic government, but in the end, they wouldn't participate in the elections either. So what is going to emerge from this is uh, a war, is the Korean War. And so here is a very brief synopsis of the Korean War. North Korea, led by Kim Il-sung, is going to invade the South in 1950. Um, and then and they're going to I mean, push really far down and take over a majority of the southern part of Korea. South Korea, aided by uh, UN forces, are going to push back, and they actually push pretty far into, into the north. Then China is going to send in some troops to help out the communists, help out the northern communists. And the north is going to put, push back into the south, only to be repelled again by the UN forces. So the Korean War, you guys, literally went back and forth from 1950 to 1953. Seoul, which was the capital of South Korea, changed hands four times during the war. It literally was like a push, tug-of-war battle back and forth. Millions of people are going to die in this war. And basically, the war ended in a ceasefire with Korea divided at the 30th parallel and remains that way until this day. The armistice, so that's the ceasefire, was supposed to be negotiated, but it never happened. And this is kind of crazy. An armistice commission actually met once a month for about 35 years at the 38th parallel, and an agreement has never been met. So technically, they are still at war, which is an important point that we're going to come back to a little bit later on, because both sides have a goal still to this day of bringing Korea back together. It's actually in their constitution. Um, There is what is called a DMZ zone at the 30th parallel. That's a demilitarized zone at the 38th parallel in a tiny village called Panmunjom. Um, You can Google that. (laughs) Just kind of Google um, Penmunjan and the DMZ zone at the 30th parallel, and you can look at pictures. It's kind of crazy that this is actually a pretty popular tourist destination on the South Korean side, not the North Korean side. There's about 75,000 visitors who come to South Korea to their side of the DMZ zone every year to take a look at North Korea, and it is nuts. Both sides on their respective sides of the DMZ zones, have humongous speakers that are aimed. So in the south, they have these big, huge poles with these big speakers, and they're aimed at the north, and the north has the same thing, aimed at the south. And they just blare out propaganda and loud patriotic music at each other. Um, So since the war, the United States has had a very close relationship with South Korea. We have about 24,000 troops still in South Korea today, and we're a huge part of their defense. 
Um, another huge part of South Korea's defense and just a defense of the region um, is Japan. And we have about 39,000 troops in Japan, in Japan and a lot of bases there, all to help defend the region from the threat of North Korea, which we will get to um, towards the end of the podcast. So that is just a brief history of, of Korea itself and how it became divided and why it stays divided to this day. All right, um, so what we're going to take a look at is, from the Korean War, we're going to look at Kim Il-sung. Kim Il-sung is going to be the first absolute ruler of North Korea. I mentioned him earlier. Um, He became the leader of North Korea starting in 1948, and he's going to rule for 46 years. He's going to die in 1994. So he is the first communist head of state in North Korea, and he basically set up a dynastic rule because what's happened since he died is his son took over when he died in 1994, and then when he passed away, his son is going to take over. Um, so that's really the pattern that we've had for the government in North Korea since 1948. Um, Kim Il-sung was very instrumental in the Korean War. He's the guy that led the invasion, that first invasion by the North that started the war. He he is going to be a big part of that. But after that effort failed in the Korean War of, of bringing the country back together, that is when he began to basically just set up North Korea um, based on how Stalin ruled the Soviet Union. Kim Il-sung was a big admirer of Stalin and his methods of ruling the country. And if you don't know anything about Stalin, y'all, I mean, the word totalitarian was basically invented to describe how he absolutely, totally controlled the country. I mean, he used terror, propaganda, censorship. I mean, he literally controlled everything. The government owned everything, uh, they were in charge of everything, and really isolated the country, and and really kind of, you know, Stalin elevated himself as like the god of the Soviet Union, he was the god of the Communist Party, you know, religion really wasn't a big part of the Soviet Union, because you were supposed to worship Stalin, and you were supposed to worship the Communist Party, his image was everywhere, statues, pictures, it's like he was always with you, and always watching you, that is what Kim Il-sung admired. Um, and that is the model that he used to 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 rule his country. So by the 1960s, he had basically eliminated all of his enemies, anybody who was against him, he had eliminated them, um, and he basically elevated himself just like Stalin did, that he was the god of this country, the savior of this of this country, and he put his family in that same category too. His parents, uncles, grandparents, all those folks were just elevated to this like godlike hero status. Um, and his rule, just like Stalin, became based on fear, propaganda, censorship, um, ignorance, and, and really isolation from the rest of the world. As far as the economy is concerned, when you think about communism, it is, you know, government controlled, not just government controlled, but government owned. Um, and he is going to really use a doctrine of just nationalism, of really them being self-sufficient and not having to rely on anybody else. Um, and so he basically kind of promoted this idea that the Korean people were masters of their own destiny. And since Kim Il-sung was the absolute ruler, he in turn, was the master of their destiny. And so, from the fifth, actually, like, in the 50s and 60s, he really emphasized industry, collective farming. Um, He pushed people to work long hours, just, like, really drove the people to, to really, you know, seize the moment and to and to be masters of their of their of their fate and they were pretty good um in the 50s and in the 60s really a model of state controlled development economically if you compared them to south korea in the same time period they were economically better off than south korea um so that's going to work for for quite some time um as far as as terror is concerned and fear and how he controlled society is each of the nation, about 22 million people were living in North Korea at this time. They were classified into really three classes. And, and, and it was according to their loyalty to him. 
he you had what was called the core class, which was about 25% of the population. And they lived in the cities and they had the best jobs and the schools and access to food and electricity and just basic amenities. Then you had um, kind of a second tier class, which was called the quote unquote wavering class, which is about 50% of the population. They had jobs, they had homes, and um, but they were really monitored. Their loyalty was really monitored by, um, by the government. They had this internal security force that kept an eye on them. And then you have the last class, which was called the hostile class. Um, and they were assigned hard labor. They lived in remote villages. I mean, just really dire conditions um, that this quote-unquote hostile class lived in. So you really didn't have dissent in North Korea in the 50s and in the 60s, at least not out loud. Um, according to Amnesty Inter- International, who who looked at, at North Korea at that point in time, um, quote-unquote, they had uh, tens of thousands of dissidents and political enemies that were in concentration camps, and untold numbers had been executed. And so that's kind of the same thing. That's, that's kind of, that is what Stalin did. I mean, Stalin had what was called the gulag, which is where millions of people, dissidents, opposition, were sent, and it's basically a death sentence. Um so that's going to be, I mean, tons and tons of people were sent to these labor camps, concentration camps. They were executed, tortured, what have you. Um, and then as far as, um, so that's fear. And so let's look at the economy. So also how they are going to, to control the people too, not just by labeling them, but really making them ignorant of what's happening in the outside, outside world, really isolating them. Um so basically, those people born after the Korean War, um, basically, they just knew what Kim, Kim Il-sung wanted them to know. And this is true up until this day, that there are no foreign newspapers. There are no broadcast. Um, all the radio stations only received, um, I mean, they're basically their government brought radio broadcast. Um, TV stations, four TV stations in North Korea, and they're all government TV stations. Um, so really, a lack of information coming into the country. Um, so censoring every bit of media. There's no freedom of press. Everything is government propaganda. All right? Um, and so they know what the government is telling them. So that's part of the, of the, of the, of the isolation and the ignorance and how they were able to control their people. Um, so what, what starts to happen as we get into the 1970s is the spending kind of got out of control. And a lot of it was just on some frivolous things. Part of it was the military. About 25% of their national budget was um, on the military. So that was a big, big expense. And it's going to take away from some of the money that was being pumped into the farming, into the heavy industry. So that is going, there's going to be a massive food shortages starting in the 70s and into the 80s. Um, a lot, they spent a lot on public works, but not in the way that you might think it. The public works programs that they built mostly were of monuments for and of Kim Il-sung. For instance, for his 60th birthday in 1972, he had this huge bronze statue built, um, of himself and it was put up in the capital, Pyongyang, um, and also in the 1970s, he commissioned an Arch of Triumph that was taller than the original one of Paris. Um, he had another tower that was built that was three feet taller than the Washington Monument. And it consisted of, listen to this, it consisted of 25,500 white granite blocks, one for each day of Kim's first 70 years of life. Um, so yeah, so that's a, a lot of what their money is going to be spent on, and it really is going to detract from, um, I mean, just p- providing food and basic necessities to a majority of the people living in North Korea. So there's going to be a massive amount of, um, of just famine, like government created famine in North Korea, um, as we get into the late seventies and into the 1980s and, um, and really into the, into the nineties too. Um, one of the things too, that is going to be a big part of who they are is really just their desire to, to build up the military, their desire to, 
um, antagonize South Korea because they are basically they're still at war. Um, you know, part of the of the family, Kim Il Sung, and then with his son and and grandson, um, you know, really see that we're that they're also at war with America. Um, and they create they are going to commit a lot of acts of terror in the 1970s and 80s um, against, in particular, um, South Korea. Um, and they didn't like us because of what Kim Il-sung kind of saw as our role in dividing Korea into, into two parts. Um, but then the other part of this is really going to be with their nuclear weapons program, which I know everybody um, is aware of, hopefully. You guys have paid attention to, to the news and you've seen all the tests that they have done recently. But that really is going to be in the 1990s. Um, that Kim Il-sung is going to announce that they were once a part of what was called the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, and they are going to announce in, in the 1990s that they are going to withdraw from that and start to explore the possibility of building a nuclear weapon. So that started as early as 1993. Um, Jimmy Carter... Um, former President Jimmy Carter um, actually visited North Korea in the 1990s to try to ease some of the tension between America and North Korea. Um, but it is not going to uh, to be that successful, as we know, because we're, we still have a lot of tension with them today. And I think that's an understatement to put it in that way. But what happens is that Kim Il-sung is going to die in 1994 fairly suddenly of a, of a, of a heart attack. And they tried, y'all, to keep him alive. <laughs> There's a couple of stories that I read. And this is just, when we think of North Korea, just how interesting and just fascinating how they operate and how they run their country. So here you go. They actually had, um, for Kim Il-sung and for his son, Kim Jong-il, they had about... 2,000 people, consisting of pharmacists, dietitians, uh, biologists, cardiologists, pathologists, all kind of other specialists who basically were supposed to just keep these these people alive. They tried to keep um, Kim Il-sung alive for for quite some time, but uh, obviously he dies in 1994. They had all kind of hundreds of men who were basically the same age and body type as Kim Il-sung, or the great leader, as he was called, and his son, who were basically used as guinea pigs for experiments with diets and drugs. Um, so, yeah, they, they thinking about the cult of personality, you know, that I, I kind of mentioned earlier with Stalin and that Kim um, Il-sung was doing there about himself, just the statues and the pictures of him, him, him everywhere. Just the story of... Um, one time he had read this story that he believed that extract from frog liver would be good for his health. And so volunteers from his people's army collected like 5,000 frogs from across the country, sent them to the presidential palace for these specialists and doctors to experiment on to see if that it was true, that if that was something that would prolong his life. Um... But alas, it did not. He's going to pass away in 1994. And Kim Jong-il is going to take over after his father's death. And so Kim Jong-il, in his taking over, he had actually been working in the government for almost 20 years, basically being groomed to succeed his father. And so he is going to rule North Korea from um, 1994 until his death in 2011. I'm going to talk the most basically about Kim Il-sung. I'm not going to talk too much about Kim Jong-il, who took over in 1994 after his father's death, because what Kim um, Il-sung set up in North Korea, basically his son continued it. But some would even describe him as being even more authoritarian than his father. He adopted what was called a military first um, campaign in the country, 
where he grew their military to be the fourth largest standing army in the world. They spent so much money on their military. Um, If you ever want to see something amazing and fascinating and a little scary, just Google like a North Korean military parade and you will see just a massive amount of, of people who are in their military. Um, and they will even pr- actually parade around weapons. So that's why, I mean, it's, it's, it's something to see. Um, so Kim Jong-il takes over and again continues a lot of what his dad started. More authoritarian, really emphasizing the military, set up this cult of personality around himself, had an, a bronze statue built um, for himself, just like his dad did. So just absolute control over the government, all right? Um, really, no, nowhere near near any type of 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 democratic uh, practices in this in this country at at all. Um, but one thing that I, I said when we talked about Kim um, Il Sung was that the economy started to to, to spiral uh, down in the nineteen late 70s into the 80s and so when um, Kim Jong-il took over it's going to get even worse the state-controlled economy in North Korea really 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 struggled in the 1990s part of it was because the amount of money that was spent on the military part of it was because the amount of money spent on the public works programs that were used to build up this cult of personality around around the leaders but part of it was just uh, there were a lot of severe floods in the 1990s that exacerbated um, the government's inability to manage the economy. Um, part of it was because I think the statistic is like 18 to 20 percent of North Korea is actually land that can be used um, for farming. And so that is um, that hurts it. And then also one of the things that has hurt North Korea is that because they have such tension with other countries they've been sanctioned over and over again so they don't have a real ability to import goods necessary to sustain themselves to sustain their agriculture or their industry so really as we get to the 1990s into the 2000s it's like devastating poverty devastating starvation um, but the thing about it, y'all, is that even though this stuff is happening, the government's controlling the information that's going into the country. So they still control the media, the radios, TV, and stuff like that, that they are ignoring it and basically proclaiming that there is a positive growth rate, that their economy is doing well. And and so people living in North Korea maybe just thought, well, maybe it's just my town. Maybe it's just my village that is is doing so bad. Um, so not only was it a lack of information coming in from what's happening outside of North Korea, but a lack of information about what's happening within their own country and not understanding how bad um, things were. Um, so him being even more authoritarian, in 2004, there was a Human Rights Watch report that said that under Kim Jong-il, um, this was one of the most repressive governments in the world, that they had over 200,000 political prisoners um, that were tortured, that are executed. I mean, it's essentially a, a death sentence um, for people living in North Korea. Um, so that's really all that I want to say about, about Kim Jong-il. There's really not much known about his personal life. There's not a lot of information about that. What is really known about him is just how he took his father's policies and made them that much worse for for everybody living in in North Korea. And so what's going to happen is he is going to pass away in 2011. All right, so when Kim... Um, John Il died. His son Kim Jong Un is gonna is gonna take over, and he's gonna be very different from his father. So where his dad was kind of groomed to take this position, he had served in the military. He was been a part of everything for about twenty years. Um, Kim Jong Un did not. 
He actually went to boarding school in Switzerland. He was kind of set up as the son of a diplomat, so nobody really knew who he was. And when his father died in 2011, he was 29 years old. And in North Korea, one of the things that's very important to a lot of the ruling class is age and experience, that that matters to to them. And Kim Jong-un had never served a day in the military. Many people were concerned that this quote-unquote boy was taking power and that he had no idea what to do. Um, So there was a lot of, of people really kind of kind of questioning, should this be the next guy? But he is. I mean, his grandfather set up this dynastic rule and that is that is that's the way that they were going to go so the government started putting out all this propaganda that started talking about how wise he was despite his age and um, and then he started to really inc- increase the, the the internal security forces rooting out people who might be against him he even at one point had an uncle removed kind of expunged from the from the um from 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 the party and then he was going to be executed he forces the military to prove their dedication by working for him and doing crazy things like for instance he had the military build a railroad from his birthplace to the capital that kind of marked his coming to power it was a present to him and it was just back-breaking work um so he continues a lot of what his father and grandfather started so let's just look here at a few at what because he's still in power, um, what life is like in North Korea under Kim Jong-un. Um, again, it's a kind of a, a culmination of what it was like under his father and grandfather. There is that elite class that lives very comfortably, the people who have access to cars, who have access to good jobs, who have access to basic amenities like indoor plumbing, electricity, so on and so forth. Um Propaganda, y'all. State TV, they show that North Korea is a land of plenty, that there are shops that overflow with goods, there's tons of manufacturing. They even have these weird, weird department stores that show all kinds of imported goods, but none of it is for sale. Like literally chock full of like washing machines, TVs, dishwashers, even food, drinks, and they're not for sale. They're just for display. They are used on state TV as propaganda to show their people that they live in the best state on earth. Um, crazy. That, that like literally these department stores set up and none of is just used for propaganda. When you walk down the streets of North Korea in the capital and even in little villages, they, they have these speakers set up everywhere and the leader's speeches are played on the streets very loudly. They're put on loop for months um, and hatred of the United States of America is very central to the propaganda. They believe the Americans are ready to invade, like they're in a constant state of readiness. They believe that Americans were, that we started the Korean War. There's propaganda against South Korea. Um, and so that the government is there to save them. They're protecting them from these outside enemies. So it's a, it's a physical dictatorship where they are literally controlling them, but it's an emotional one too. It's a psychological one. You think as, as Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-il and all, and his dad is being these incredibly godlike people. He is their savior. Once a week, whole villages are required to attend meetings to glorify their leader, and you have to go to them. If you don't, you could be um, targeted. Um, and there's even a fear of of neighbors, you know, kind of spying on on each other. That it's not only the you know that that, that they could tell the police, they could tell the military that they didn't go to the meeting this week, so on and so forth. And the thing about it, you guys, it's not only the person who commits the crime that is punished, but it's also their family. Um, if you look at satellite imagery, I don't even know if, if it's our government you know, looking at, at, at satellite imagery of, of North Korea. You can literally see the pr- political prisoner pr- pr- prison camps. They believe that there's over 300,000 people in those political prison camps many of whom were caught trying to defect. And in these prison camps, as I said before, they torture people, they beat people, and they'll do it for months. They'll starve you. Some people eventually get released. And if you think about what was in the news this past summer, that kid from Virginia who went to school, who was detained and sentenced to all this hard labor, and he is going to be 
released basically at death's door, that that is what they're doing to people in those prison camps. Um, they And the thing that Kim Jong-un has kind of struggled with is that as we've gotten into here to, you know, 2011, 2012, how technology is evolving, they're, are, they're really struggling to keep central control. Because if you think about his, his, his grandfather, um, Kim Il-sung, and then his dad, Kim Jong-il, how they were able to really keep central control because there was no knowledge of the outside world. World, they really controlled that. But what's happened as we've gotten into, you know, further in, into 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 time, is that there is some information and videos that do get struggled in, and a lot of the statistics from the people who defect and are able to get out of North Korea will say that they were inspired because they saw some type of video, some type of picture, or read something about what life is like outside of North Korea. Whether it's South Korea, Europe, they saw it and they wanted out of North Korea. Um, Kim Jong-un has sent troops house to house searching for these DVDs, pictures, etc. He executes people who have them. So one of the things that North Korea, the, uh, the regime, fears the most is information coming in. Um, they are so cut off. They, or they try to cut North Korea off so much Um but some people will, t- they'll, they'll take that risk and they'll try to listen to broadcasts. They'll rig up a radio and try to get a broadcast coming from South Korea. They'll try to watch a DVD. Um, and what they realize is their government has been fooling them and they want freedom. Um, South Korea, this is kind of interesting, they have a TV show. That is all defectors that is broadcasted in South Korea and it's illegal to watch it in North Korea. There are over 20,000 defectors living in South Korea. And what they are trying to do is they're trying to encourage and to reach out to others in North Korea, whether it's through the TV show, whether it's through um, um, radio broadcasts, whatever it is that they're trying to do. They're trying to to reach people um, because what they want people to realize in North Korea is that. People outside of, of North Korea have freedoms, like speech, um, just basic rights, basic amenities. And when you're living in North Korea, you the, those defectors would say how hopeless they felt, how cynical they were, um, and how brainwashed they were by the propaganda coming from North Korea. But what's happened is, again, you know, te- technology is changing, and they're allowing... Um, or, or, or they're illegally, you know, being able to obtain these things. But one of the things that's actually happened in the last five years that is is giving people a little bit of hope in North Korea is cell phones came to North Korea in the first year. For and actually in the first three years, North Korea went from zero cell phones to one million in three years, and then they went from one million to two million in a year cell phones. And so what happens is you get these cell phones in North Korea and they are modified. They are our cell phones where you get the SIM cards from the government. You can only use the uh, North Korean, uh, what's it called? Not Wi-Fi. The North Korean cell system, I guess you could call it. Um, so there's a better term for that, but that's what I'm going to say. So your calls can only be made to North Korea and you can't access the internet. But what's happened is that people have figured out ways to modify them, to modify these cell phones, which is super, super illegal. And you could be executed for this. Um, but what happens is that with cell phones leads to this access of information, which, le- which leads to people learning more about what life is like outside of North Korea, which in turn, can give people a little bit of hope. I'm not saying that this is widespread, and you know there are over 20 million people living in in North um, Korea, but um, but it's happening. It's 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 small, and so one of the things that historians and political scientists kind of look up uh, at now is where is this going to lead? Like the foundation for change in North Korea is being laid right now with the with all this evolving of of technology because access to information often leads to change and that is happening right now in North Korea and 
one of the, of the dilemmas for the dictator, for Kim Jong-un and for his party is um, with this access to information and people's mindset being changed and realizing that there's more to this world than what their government is telling them, that they need to reform a little bit. They need to open up and maybe uh, try a hand at democracy. But the dilemma is that would lead to a humongous loss of power. So there's actually been in the last few years a real split in the party itself. Kind of the people who think, you know what, maybe we shouldn't look at some of the reforms. Maybe we do need to make some changes. And there are just some hardliners um, who refuse to change. And that's where Kim Jong-un is. He holds on to the power through this massive reign of terror. You know, as I mentioned, he even had an uncle who was kind of on the reforming side who was removed from the party and executed. Um, but that's, that's a really, that's an interesting thing that we should pay attention to in the next decade is where does North Korea go from here? That they've been isolated and cut off for so long, but now information is leaking into the country and the potential is there. All right. So that's kind of where I want to end with with that part of North Korea. But then the other part that I want to talk about is the part that's in the news a lot with good reason, and that is the nuclear program. Um, because that has been a threat to South Korea, to Japan, to China, to America since the 1990s. I mean, if you were to Google, like there's a famous image from years ago, literally Google map of death, North Korea, um, you will see that they years ago had this like this map of um, the United States of America showing all these targets and showing lines drawn from North Korea hitting these targets in America. Um, and what's happened, what our response has been to North Korea is we have have sanctioned them. We, United States of America, the UN have put all kinds of, of sanctions on North Korea. And we're to a point with North Korea right now that we're really not sure what to do. Many um, military figures, politicians, political scientists say that if something was was going to be done, it should have been done in the 1990s. We're at a point right now where they have it, where they have the capability. Um, some people in America and I think across the globe kind of had this reluctance to believe that they have them, but they do. If you look at the tests that they have done recently, um, I mean that you all think about the map that I just said in some of their military parades, they will literally parade around ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. There's a picture of Kim Jong-un, Google it, standing next to a warhead. So it would be a mistake for us to underestimate exactly what they are are doing. I mean, just this summer, we know they tested an ICBM that could actually hit the United States of America. Um, and I recently uh, listened to an interview with Jeffrey Lewis. He's the director of East Asia Nonproliferation Program at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. And he believes, he's been studying this stuff for years, that, um, you know, not only can this missile they tested this summer hit Alaska, but it could hit the mainland for sure. Um, they could go much further than Alaska. Um, and so the question is, what do they want? You know, if they have these weapons, what what do they want? And so one of the things that political scientists believe that North Korea wants is to be treated like a normal country. They want diplomatic recognition. They do not want any sanctions. They want their leader, Kim Jong-un, to be invited to state dinners to be invited to be a part of the UN. They want the Kim family to be treated like legitimate leaders of a legitimate country. But the problem is, and I think this is not only a problem for North Korea, but it's also a problem for uh, our relationship with a lot of countries like this, is that they are guilty of a massive amount of human rights violations. Massive crimes against humanity. People are starving. They're executing people. They're terrorizing people. So the question has become for our government, I would say, you know, starting with Bush and then Obama and now with Trump is, what do we do? What do we do with people like Kim Jong-un or other leaders 
um, that could be considered terrible dictators who have committed massive amounts of human rights violations, what do we do? Do we invite them? Do we try to reach out and start a relationship with somebody like Kim Jong-un who treats his country the way that he does? The politics of it just stinks, you know, of to manage and to keep this threat at bay, but also not saying to them that how you run your country is okay. Executing people, torturing people, that's not okay. Um... Some people in the UN think that these tests are well planned out, that the maps that they leak, the pictures and the videos of the military parades are more for propaganda, like more for themselves, more for um, their control of their of their own country. Um, but that's that's debated. And so It'll be interesting to see. I mean, just like I, I kind of said a minute ago about the foundation being laid for change in North Korea, um, what, what, what's going to happen in the next year, in the next five years, in terms of the not only the government of North Korea, but also their military program and our relationship with them, the UN's relationship with North Korea, a country that would like to be respected and recognized but yet threaten everyone around them and terrorize their own people. So that's where we're going to leave it. That is that is a look at North Korea. Um, so a lot of questions to think about, a lot of things to pay attention to. Um, maybe I'll put out another as you know in a few months, kind of see where where things go with North Korea. Maybe I'll put out an update to um, to this. But as of this recording, which is July 28th, 2017. That is the situation um, in North Korea. I just Googled on my phone North Korea and hit news. And so this is the the latest thing that has that is our in our news cycle, July 28th, 2017. Um, headlines. North Korea fired a missile that may have landed off the coast of Japan. Britain and Australia urged China to do more on the North Korea threat. So that is the news um, today coming out of North Korea. All right, so that's it for this episode of Running Through History. And if you think about that name, I picked that name because obviously I love running. I love history. If you know me, those are two things that I am passionate about. But both of those things I feel like are important to make us better people. You know, I run because it gives me a chance to think, to relax. It's good for my health. It makes me a better person. It gives me more energy. And studying history, you know, what we just talked about is hard. But I feel like for us to be better people, we need to be informed. We need to be aware um, so that we can be just be good citizens of this, of America and of the earth. And so that is why um, I personally love history. Okay. And why I love to run. So um, get out there, learn some history, do some running. <laughs>